Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Monday, October 19th. We begin with a very interesting concept when it comes to the battle of COVID-19. We speak with a professor of epidemiology on what is being called the Swiss cheese model. Today is the day all Albertans are eligible to receive their free flu vaccination shots. We'll hear about the science behind the flu shot from our on-call family physician, Dr. Ted Jablonski. Then we speak with a Calgary pharmacist, Amin Kanji, on how this year the process will be a bit different to get your shot due to the pandemic. It's called the Parity Cup, and you can think of it as the new Battle of Alberta. We hear about this friendly competition, which encourages more women to run for city council in our province's two biggest cities. And finally, just over two weeks until the U.S. federal election, it was a busy weekend on the campaign trail. We get the latest from Global Washington reporter Reggie Cicchini. 609 on the morning news. As the months have gone by, pandemic fatigue is an increasing concern. Public health experts are reminding people of the importance of these measures using a very unusual metaphor. Swiss cheese. That's right, Swiss cheese. Here to chat more about this interesting model is infection control epidemiologist and assistant professor at the University of Toronto, Colin Furness. Good morning to you, Professor. Good morning. All right. So, you know, we have to we do some kind of an explanation here because we're comparing these measures to Swiss cheese. How does this work out? It's almost easier to show you than tell you, yeah. but uh, given radio, let's talk. Mm-hmm. Um, imagine taking several slices of Swiss cheese and setting them up like dominoes. So up on their end, all, all, all in a row. And if you look down... Uh, the length of it, you could see that there's some holes that line up from one slice to another and holes that don't. So if you can imagine COVID is coming horizontally toward the Swiss cheese, it might make it through one hole, another hole, and then it's and then it's, it stops another piece of cheese. So if each of those pieces of cheese is an intervention, like hand hygiene or wearing masks or bubbling, physical distancing, what we see is that some every intervention has weaknesses, right? Holes through which COVID can get through. And some of them line up so that the same weakness applies to multiple interventions, which is why you need to do them all. In other words, if you want COVID to stop COVID from making it through the deck of Swiss cheese, you need to have enough layers, enough different slices where the holes don't line up so that the strengths of some interventions, <clears throat> pardon me, outweigh the or, or compensate for the risks or, or weaknesses of other interventions. Makes sense. So one cheese, one piece of cheese, the hole will be in a different spot than the other. So it will hopefully block what's next to it if we're using the right intervention. So this model, though, nothing new, is it, Professor? I was reading a little bit about it, and it sounds like it's been in use for some time now. Um, It has. I mean, I think it's a really nice way to visualize what can otherwise be kind of hard to explain. Mm -hmm. You know, why do I need to wear a mask and physical distance and only have small gatherings. Like, why do I need to do all that? I'm, I'm just wearing a mask. I'm, gonna do, I'm not going to do anything else. So when you're trying to say to someone, that's not okay, um, what you're really saying is now you've just got one slice of Swiss cheese between you and COVID, right? COVID can make it through. There's holes there. So I think it's a very compelling metaphor. And what this says to me, Professor, is there's not one method that is, I guess you'd say, paramount overall, like that the parts together are what we're talking about here. Exactly. Yeah, there is no one, no one intervention is going to guarantee that you're safe, but you layer them on or bundle them, as we often say, bundle them together, and that provides a lot of protection. So a series of barriers, and can it be applied, for example, in other parts of our world, Professor, that we might be using it right now and not even realize it? I think anytime you're talking about safety measures, and it could be in any domain, then I think when you've got multiple safety measures, we wear seatbelts, we don't speed, we don't go through red lights, and so on and so forth, right? So if you think about any kind of context where safety matters, uh, I, I think it applies.
And this is tough from your uh, standpoint because you know that these four or five measures are important. We know that together uh, we can have uh, some success. Uh, but the fatigue part, that's, uh, that's the human element. Is that something that you're hearing more and more people saying, I just wish it was over? I'm hearing it. I'm seeing it as well. I mean, I wish it was over. I think that's a pretty normal human reaction. The problem comes where you get inured to it, where you just sort of shrug your shoulders and say, well... Oh, I'm just I'm just not even going to think about it anymore. I'm going to go out to dinner with a bunch of friends and we're not going to wear masks because I miss it because we we haven't done this in so long and and that's honestly that's that's awfully dangerous. That that's taking a lot of cheese off the table. Do you think that um you know if if people are sort of following this Swiss cheese model, you know, is it enough to do two, three? Do you need to do all of them at the same time? Do you think is it best or are we are we okay with just doing perhaps a few of these Swiss cheese portions? Well, it ultimately gets down to your comfort with risk. And, you know, the, the public health advice that I think is best to follow is you can't be too safe from COVID. And, and I think that's a really important thing to think about. But different people are going to have different tolerances for risk. Um, I wouldn't get on an airplane. Some people do. I wouldn't go to a restaurant. Some people have. So there's, there's obviously going to be some differences in terms of what feels okay. But I think the general principle of you need multiple interventions together in order to stay safe. I think just think that's such an important message. What are the key points when it comes to that fatigue? Masks. And since you're an epidemiologist, I'm going to put this to you because uh, watching uh, Global News over the weekend, and it was in uh, Vancouver, there were uh, anti-mask protests. Here in the city of Calgary, there was one that was arranged for a mall that didn't really come to fruition. What do you say to people who say, well, you know what, I've seen it. I, uh, I personally believe that the masks don't work. How do you counter that? We have a lot of data uh, across the world that compare what was going on before masks were brought in to what was going on after masks were brought in, and it is very compelling. Masks are, of all the slices of Swiss cheese, that's the one with the fewest holes. That's the one with the highest impact, no question at all. The, and the, the evidence is, is compelling, and it's not equivocal. It's not like it's helped in some places and not in others. No, no, it helps absolutely everywhere. There's no question. And when we think about super spreader events, super spreader events all have one thing in common, no masks. So I think it's, it's really obvious, really obvious that masks are incredibly important and they've got to be on the face, they've got to be over the nose. And if you're in an elevator by yourself, you've got to keep that mask on, otherwise you're filling that elevator with droplets for the next person who gets on after you leave. So really thinking very carefully about, I need to keep my droplets to myself. That's what the mask is, keeping my droplets to myself. There's no other way to keep your droplets to yourself because we all spray droplets when we when we exhale. We all do. I like that. Keep my droplets to myself. So on that note, invariably we'll get a text in saying, well, you know, people are wearing masks more and more and yet the numbers are going up and up. Why is that? Well, I think that has to do with the fact that COVID is a very successful virus, and it's it's you give it a, you give it an inch and it'll take a mile. Also, generally speaking, when we do contact tracing, we find out that transmission happened when the mask wasn't on. So that yes, there's a lot of mask wearing, but there's also a fair bit of not mask wearing. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's where you, you show me a case of COVID, and I'll show you where there was a mask not being worn. Mm -hmm. And still, you know, we're hearing more and more cases in the first one of MISC-C, M-I-S-C, in, in our nation in uh, uh, British Columbia. It does, uh, you know, uh, bear, uh, worth mentioning, rather, uh, that this is an ageless virus. Anybody can get it. And I think at first we thought it was just for seniors. Uh, but now the younger set are uh, certainly susceptible. Easy for me to say, Colin. Well, no, 
absolutely. I mean, I, I wonder how well behaved I'd be if I were in my 20s and, and not having spent a lot of time thinking about this and learning about this stuff and, and feeling like I was invincible as I did when I was in my 20s. And it's true that you're less likely to have horrible consequences, but less likely to have horrible consequences is not the same thing as staying safe. And we don't know what the long-term consequences are long-term effects because we haven't had a long-term yet. We know there's permanent lung damage. We know there's permanent heart damage. We know there's permanent brain damage. Will permanent brain damage turn into a lot more dementia in another 10 years? Possibly. There could be other even worse long-term effects. I don't want to list them off because I think that's it's a sort of a, a terrifying list. But I think we want to think, we want to understand that COVID is still new. It is still relatively unknown. And from what little we know, it's a pretty nasty customer. It's something that doesn't matter how old you are, you do not want this virus. So it's the Swiss cheese model, seven slices, if you think about it this way, of physical barriers, physical distancing, ventilation, masks, hand hygiene, testing, contact tracing, and surface cleaning. Thank you for explaining it to us. Appreciate your time this morning. My pleasure. Thank you. That is Professor Colin Furness, infection control epidemiologist and assistant professor at the University of Toronto. It's 719 now and it is that time of year once again. Time to roll up your sleeve and get your annual flu shot. Andy and I are getting ours done this morning. So how exactly does the flu shot work? Why do we need it every year? Why do we get the vaccination in late fall? There's some science behind it. So with the answers, we're checking in with our on-call family physician, Dr. Ted Jablonski. Hi, Dr. J. Good morning. Good Monday morning to you. Okay, so explain to us how a flu shot works, please. Okay, so... When we get infected with a virus, our immune system fights it off. And if we survive, it gives us a memory of that virus. So if whoever saw that virus again, it would instantly recognize it and instantly have an immune response. The problem is some viruses can kill us. So we make a vaccine which allows us to get that memory without actually having a risk of getting the infection or dying. So why do we need it every year, though? Why? And so that's a good question, right? Mm. So the flu shot is unique in that most uh, childhood immunizations, if you give a full series, that's good forever. It's lifelong. You get this huge memory that lasts and lasts and lasts. With the flu shot, the memory is actually very uh, short-lived. And each year, there's a, a unique pattern of what viruses we may or may not see. So the science behind it is actually the, the scientists look at what's happening six months uh in a different part of the world. So they essentially look at the winter in Australia and around Australia and then project that out six months. So whatever Australia is seeing in their winters six months ago is what our viral uh, vaccine will look like this year in North America. So it's a bit of a guessing game, but based on a pretty good prediction. Now, this year is unique because in Australia, their rate of influenza is down to 10%. So now our science is where we have much less to work on to sort out what's going to happen in North America. Typically, they pick three viruses. Uh, this year, the flu uh, shot that we get in Alberta will have four. So it's a four viral uh, vaccine. And um, they have also a high test one for seniors. So anyone living in a long-term care facility, age 65 or older, there's a high test vaccine uh, which essentially uh, has an added part that really boosts the immune system because as we get older, our, our system doesn't react as strongly. So this one makes it react. So uh, this is a unique year, and it's sort of a, a bit of a unique flu uh, shot year for us in Alberta. 
And as a physician, you're still 100% behind getting the flu shot this year, particularly so with COVID in our midst? Absolutely, absolutely. There's, there's no question to that. So you were doing the right thing this morning. I've already had my flu shot last week. Uh, I think everyone who can get one should get one. Uh, our rates in Alberta are really quite poor. Uh, like historically, our rates vary somewhere between 22 and 33% of people only get the flu shot. This is easily available. It's fully covered. Um, so there really is very little reason not to get it. Okay. Why this year is particularly important is obviously because of COVID. If we can get our seasonal influenza rate down like Australia did, down to 10%, we are going to mm-hmm. save so many hospitalizations and so many potential deaths, which allows us still that ability to deal with COVID if there is a second or third wave, etc. The number of deaths in Canada is, is estimated about 3,500 by influenza death rates. The hospitalizations is up to 60,000 hospitalizations a year, every year. And, and we just take that for granted that, that, oh, that's just part of doing business. We can't change that. But if we got that vaccination rate from in the 30s and got that into the 60s or 70 percent, we could actually knock that right down to, like Australia did, down to 10 percent. And that would save a huge amount of of money, essentially. We can make a difference. Thanks for your time, Dr. J. Uh, you betcha. That's Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician. Andrew and I will get our flu shots this morning, and the man who gives us the shot each year is Amin Kanji, pharmacist at the Medicine Shop Pharmacy on 4th Street in southwest Calgary. Good morning, Amin. Good morning, Sue. How are you? Excellent. All ready to uh, see you today. And uh, I'm sure there'll be a lot of people rolling into the pharmacy today. It's it's the first day for most folks to be able to get their flu shot, right? That's right. Today's the actual day that we can actually, uh, as pharmacists, uh, give out flu shots to um, all Albertans. Uh, we started last week with high-risk individuals and those that had uh, immunocompromised conditions. Uh, but today, the general public um, can start getting their flu shots. I'm in a little different this year. I know that like with my teens, for example, I would stroll in uh, to a pharmacy and get it done and uh, didn't have to make an appointment. A little more stringent this year, isn't it? Absolutely, Andrew, because, uh, you know, with COVID, uh, we want to first make sure that when you come into the pharmacy, you are, you know, feeling well, you're healthy, you have no symptoms. Um, And also we want to prevent people, you know, crowding into the pharmacies. Uh, As you can imagine, uh, safety is the utmost. And so we prefer that you call ahead, make an appointment. So we set aside a time for you to come in and get your flu shot in a safe environment uh, where you're not going to be there with many other people. And, uh, you know, we secure a time that's dedicated for you and your family to get your flu shot. I mean, somebody texted in about this earlier. This shot is for the respiratory flu, not the stomach flu. Is that correct? Are there two different types here? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. The stomach flu is completely different. This is more for the respiratory flu. So this is a common flu influenza, which we experience every year sort of around this time. Uh, the stomach flu is more due to a, a viral illness that is self-limiting um, and typically lasts about 24 to 48 hours. And we don't currently have a vaccine for that. We have uh, sort of supportive therapy for that, but not a vaccine for the stomach flu. And it's different for the kids. Is it under the age of five? They can't go to the regular pharmacy. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So as pharmacists, we're able to um, uh, vaccinate uh, kids five years and older. Uh, but those under the age of five have to go to the um, the Alberta Health uh, uh, public vaccination facilities. A couple of quick questions for you, Min. One of them, as a listener text, I understand there are two types of vaccine. Do all seniors get a higher dose of the flu shot? 
No. So there are two types of vaccines, uh, the regular flu vaccine and the high-dose vaccine. So the high-dose is recommended for those seniors, again, who are um, immunocompromised, who have chronic conditions, um, and especially those that live in long-term care facilities, nursing homes. Uh, we recommend the high-dose for uh, that segment of the population. But uh, those living in community, those living at home, um, you know, can certainly get the regular flu uh, uh, vaccine, and uh, that suffices for them. Amin, we'll see you later this morning and roll up our sleeves. <laughs> Sounds good. Looking forward to seeing you. Appreciate that. That's Amin okay. Kanji, pharmacist at the Medicine Shop Pharmacy on 4th Street in southwest Calgary. 8.49 on the morning news. Jillian Hines, chair of Ask Her YYC, has partnered with the group's Edmonton counterpart, Parity YEG, to encourage more women to run for city council in 2021. This friendly competition between Edmonton and Calgary is called the Parity Cup, and Jillian joins us now with all the details. Good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks for having me here. Thanks for being here. Well, let's break this down because it's the new Battle of Alberta. It's a friendly competition, but how do you measure something like this, and how does it work? You bet. So it is It is the new Battle of Alberta, and we think it's a bit of a lighthearted contest that has a, a serious message, right? We need more women elected to municipal government in 2021. And so you'll see a series of monthly challenges, which will actually be led by a roster of champions in each city. So think about, you know, influencers, community connectors, business leaders, and we'll use social media to really amplify the message and get people engaged, involved, and passionate about seeing more women showing up in politics. Why is it? I mean, I, you know, I'm asking, I, I think I probably know some of the answers, but, you know, as you sort of do your research and ask people and talk to women why they don't run for municipal politics or politics as a whole, what seem to be some of the answers that continually pop up? Yeah, you bet. And we know we have to ask women to run multiple times for office. And research shows it's at least seven times before a woman decides to step up to the plate and run. And there are reasons that make it harder for women to put their name forward. Um, some of those barriers, um, you know, include social gender roles that might force a woman to choose between career and political ambitions or family. There's still that sort of age-old self self-doubt or imposter syndrome and maybe not looking exactly like or having the same experiences as those already in elected office. There's also gender notions of, of leadership and, and, you know, some stereotypes around what women leaders bring to the table in terms of skill. Uh, there's always reliable child care concerns and how do you make sure your family is taken care of. And, and there's also online bullying and harassment. So there's there are quite a few barriers that make women a bit more hesitant or less likely to run for office. Really kicking off today, and you look down this uh, down the line, it's October 18th, 2021 that we're talking about. So I guess you got to keep people busy. You have events planned right on through the next year. Is that right? You bet. So for the next 12 months, we'll have some, um, some different challenges throughout the year to really keep the spotlight and amplify the message that we're trying to send here. So the message is we want more women to step up and take roles, particularly in this case, in municipal politics. So is there a place for women to go to, to find more information, to have that conversation and perhaps to, to, to be, you know, led you know, into wanting to take a role on like this? You bet. So for both of our cities, you can check out ParityYEG.ca and AskHerYYC.com. ParityYEG has a fantastic resource kit available that really breaks down the steps to running. And at Ask Her, we've gone the route of offering different sort of programs, mentorship opportunities, and, and connection building. And either organization, I would say, reach out to us. 
And we are more than happy to get on a call and help um, point you in the right direction of the information that might be available to you. Jillian, thanks for your time this morning. Thank you so much. That's Jillian Hines, chair of Ask Her YYC. 709 on the morning news. Americans will go to the polls two weeks tomorrow in what some have deemed the most important federal election in modern times. With the latest on the campaign trail, we're joined by Reggie Cicchini, Global News Washington correspondent. Good morning to you, Reggie. Good morning. Busy one over the weekend. President Donald Trump, I saw some images of him in Las Vegas. How well attended were his events in Vegas? Much like we've seen uh, over the last couple of weeks as the president has been heading out on the trail, uh, there were several people, uh, several thousand people, many of them not socially distanced, many of them not wearing masks, but many of them not caring. They simply want to be able to stand in front of the president they intend to vote for. Uh, It is worth pointing out here that the president uh, is campaigning in a series of states right now, including Nevada, uh, that he really shouldn't have needed to be doing at the beginning of the year. That goes to show how close polls have tightened right now uh, and and, and kind of... uh, you know, paints a picture of, of potential desperation inside of a campaign. Reggie, looking at, as I introduced you, the, the money and the polls, how, how much bearing does this play in terms of fundraising for each of the candidates and the, the money that they're bringing in versus, you know, how they're doing in the polls? Well, look, the money is huge right now, particularly if you are in the Biden campaign. They had a huge haul in September with $380 plus million. The president's campaign had just over $280 million. And this is, you know, somebody who, you know, four years ago had hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars and even had more money than Biden earlier this year. That money has just bled away. And that's why you're going to see the president head into California, uh, a state that he has absolutely no chance of winning. But there's big money that comes out of California. He's doing what he can to try and suck up. Up some of that cash because he needs it. They've been pulling out of spending on ads in parts of the Midwest and in parts uh, of the North. Uh, and what that shows is that he understands that there is a difficult path ahead uh, and he's using what money he has left to try and leverage the voters that he knows he can try to target in states like Pennsylvania and North Carolina. Reggie advanced uh, voting numbers have been huge over the past few weeks. Uh, so far, uh, anyway, people are uh, wanting to make their vote count ahead. Is the surge continuing? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, look, there's a there's a big surge uh, from what we saw in 2016. Uh, roughly 27, 28, 29 million votes have already been cast in early ballots. Uh, and there are more states that are opening up today. Parts of Florida will allow for early ballots. Uh, this could, you know, give an indication, especially in parts of Florida, uh, to how well Trump is doing now that we can get people out to the polls. Uh, it is, uh, you know, worth noting that lines have been long for weeks, but in parts of the U.S. South and in parts of some reliably red states, uh, there have been more uh uh, uh, Republicans registering to vote than there have been Democrats. It's been starting to kind of uh, lessen the gap between both Joe Biden and Donald Trump. Uh, and that's solely because Donald Trump has a physical presence with his campaign team still going door to door. Joe Biden has pulled that away and has for the last several months. Uh, so there is kind of a, a more visual presence to get people out to vote and get them to register. That's what we're seeing right now. That's kind of a leading advantage right now for Republicans. Reggie, any relief or assistance coming for Americans suffering the effects of the pandemic? It, is there, are they any closer to getting a deal put through? Apparently, there is, uh, you know, talk still happening between the Senate that they want to roll something forward, that Nancy Pelosi has been in conversation, that this is something uh, that they want to try to get worked on, possibly even ahead of the election, uh, given the fact that, you know, there's only a couple of weeks left here. Uh, But the fact that it has been left for so long and with so many people having voted already, this is uh, uh, becoming an election issue for people who have been suffering because their business doesn't have any money or have been suffering uh, because their employment insurance uh, is running out or has been cut. Uh, So the 
the fact that something hasn't been passed yet and might get passed in the days or weeks to come uh, isn't really any kind of solace to somebody who's already cast a ballot uh, and voted potentially out of anger at the fact that Washington let them suffer financially. On the schedule this week, all eyes on Thursday, the 22nd, where the uh, debate is supposed to be taking place. What do we know about the, uh, the debate at this point? Is it going to go ahead as planned or might it look differently if it does go ahead? We, we do know that it is still expected to go ahead. Uh, if there are any kind of changes from the commission, there is a possibility that one or both candidates could pull out once more. Uh, but this is kind of an essential moment for Donald Trump. He needs this debate stage. He needs this kind of public viewing of him up against Joe Biden just to kind of dr- try to draw in any of those undecideds that are still left out there by that point, less than two weeks out from the election. Uh, you know, we know he pulled out from the last debate. He turned it into a town hall. He did kind of get razzed for some of the answers he gave when he was one one-on-one on NBC. But this debate on Thursday is going to be an essential poll for both of them to try to draw in what's left uh, of, of the electorate out there that possibly hasn't made up their mind. Voters are coming out in unprecedented numbers. Does this lead people to believe one thing or another, or does it just mean people are invested in this no matter what side they might be on? Enthusiasm is huge right now uh, across the United States. You're seeing that in the early ballots, but you're also noting that there is a sense of fear amongst both campaigns, especially amongst the Biden campaign. They're trying to get this message out to not only Democrats, but their internal staff don't become complacent because you see us leading in these polls right now, because we know the polls were wrong in 2016. (laughs) There is a chance that these numbers aren't as big as they possibly uh, are in reality for Biden's lead. So the message is, is to voters, you know, go out there, get your votes done, but don't Uh, don't kind of give up act like we're losing right now so that there's that urge and urgency to get out there and get out the vote because anything can change uh, in two weeks we saw that happen four years ago and of all this happening again an important two weeks uh, two weeks tomorrow as mentioned uh, coronavirus is not stopping and we're hearing that more than a couple of states are continuing to see surges and very very few are uh, on the downswing right Yeah, look, there are 30 states at least that are seeing an upswing right now. We know that uh, health officials are saying the U.S. has officially entered a second wave, even though that first wave doesn't really feel like it ever let go on parts of the country because of these ebbs and flows. There are field hospitals that are being set up in parts of Wisconsin, which is being hit incredibly hard right now. Uh, The numbers are going up in parts of New York. The numbers are going up in parts of the Midwest and parts of the West. This is problematic, and health experts are saying the next 6 to 12 weeks in the U.S. could become the darkest since the very beginning of the pandemic when we were seeing hundreds of thousands of people, uh, you know, fall ill and die. Uh, there is a chance here that these numbers could increase far beyond what we saw over the weekend, which was 70,000 new cases in one day. And that was the, the most that the U.S. has seen uh, really since the summertime. Reggie, uh, it was a smaller march, but a women's march nonetheless that went through Washington on Saturday. Any end result from that? Well, look, it was earlier than it usually is. That march doesn't take place usually until January. But with the passing of RBG uh, and with the kind of uh, fear uh, over some Democrats with what would happen uh, if the Republicans were reelected or with this nomination of Amy Coney Barrett, this was uh, one of those uh, kind of Democratic get out the vote opportunities that they tried to rally as many people as they could to say, look, there is a need for us to get out and vote, particularly uh, suburban women that the president has been both targeting and trying to lure in at the same time, trying to get their voices heard. You know, we'll have to wait and see if it made any kind of difference they were met with a counter rally of women trying to say that you know people like amy coney barrett's nomination is good for women this is one of those moments watch what happened see how it uh, kind of plays out two weeks down the road reggie thanks for your time this morning thank you that's reggie Chikini, global's washington correspondent